Okay, everybody, I think we should um, get started just while the final people buy drinks at the bar. Um, just first of all, just some house notes for everybody. If people who are sitting on the steps at the end could just move in, please, um, because it does create a block for other people who might come later on. Um, just to introduce me, um, my name is Misha Ketchell. I'm the editor of The Conversation. Um, I'm going to just make some very brief remarks before I hand over to our speakers, who I know you're here to see. Um, I'd like to start by thanking the traditional owners of the land um, on which we are talking today. They are the Yalakut Willem, um, and they are part of the Boon Warung, which is one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. I'd actually not heard of this particular um, Indigenous group before, so um, that's a new one for me as well. So um, we're on the land of the Yalakut Willem today. Um, I just wanted to start by very quickly giving you a little bit of context before we t start our remarks about the political year, about what the conversation is trying to achieve. Um, and I was sort of thinking about this recently because I was part of a panel discussion um, at Parliament House in Canberra um, where John Daly, uh, a man who runs a public think tank called the Grattan Institute, was talking about the opinion surveys which show that confidence in our political leaders and trust in our major political parties has been declining for uh, a long period of time, more than a decade. Um, and we've seen a, a real trend of a lack of trust or a sort of a detachment from... Um, political leaders. And John Daly actually um, made some comments speculating on why this might be the case. Um, and one of his observations was that when you walk around Parliament House um, and you see the people who are patrolling the, the corridors who are lobbying, they're virtually all people who are paid by particular vested interests to put particular points of view forward. Um, and he made the point, he said... You know, when I look around the way this place functions, one of the things I see is that the public interest actually has very few friends in this place. Um, people who are pumping for vested interests are here, but the public interest is not as adequately represented as it could be. Um, and the reason I think that is significant is because one of the things that the conversation is trying to achieve is serving the public interest by providing good quality information for a wide audience... Um, what we do is we work only with academics. We work only with academics who are speaking within their area of expertise and we work with them to try to provide impartial information that will inform the public about matters of public interest. Um, we've been going for seven years. Um, we've been very successful in that we now have an audience of around about six and a half to seven million readers a month. Um, we've expanded to the UK and the US and Africa and France um, Canada, we've got um, people in um, Indonesia and there's a team in New Zealand. So this idea that, that came out of Melbourne, really, which is about informing public discourse and providing quality information to inform democracy um, has been very successful in terms of creating a, a global footprint. Um, one of the downsides of, of what we do is that um, in any new journalism model, it's a constant fight to find sufficient funding to do the work that you want to do and to do the stories that you want to do. So 
I just wanted to mention that to you all because if you do read the conversation and you like what we do, um, we do have a, a donate button on our site and you can actually become a friend of the conversation. Um, and if you would like to support it, I would encourage you to do that. I would also encourage anybody who is interested to buy the book. Um, it's a sample of the 50 best articles from the past year on a really wide range of topics. And there sort of is a bit of a theme which is around the divorce between what the evidence tells us and, you know, uh, the reality that's represented in public discourse, sort of this term which is magical thinking that I think um, the panel will talk about a bit tonight. So that's sort of the, the key background. So I'd just like to... Um, very quickly introduce our panellists, who probably really do need no introduction. Um, but it's a pleasure to introduce Michelle Grattan, um, who has been a member of the Canberra Parliamentary Press Gallery for more than 40 years, during which time she has covered all the most significant stories in Australian politics. She's probably one of the only writers for The Conversation who publishes stories at 2am in the morning and a follow-up at 7am on the same day. And I've got to say, we struggle to keep up with her, the editors, um, you know, who, who work on her copy because she's so prolific. Uh, I don't know if any of you were listening to ABCRN yesterday morning, but she was up at 6am speaking on radio. Then 12 hours and an interstate flight later, she was speaking in front of a crowd of 200 people in Brisbane. Today, uh, I think that Michelle was in the airport lounge filing on Sam Dastiari's retirement from Parliament. So we had that story up. And now she's here to talk to you. Um, you may not all know that uh, Michelle is a former editor of the Canberra Times um, and that made her the first female editor of an Australian daily newspaper. She's been with the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald and political editor of The Age. Michelle currently has a dual role with an academic position at the University of Canberra um, and somewhere between all of that she manages to write for us as the conversation's chief political correspondent. Today she's joined by The Conversation's politics and society editor, Amanda Dunn, who has just wrapped up her own book tour circuit for her book, The New Puberty. And I embarrassed my daughter by giving her an inscribed copy of it. My daughter's 14 and it's just perfect for a 14-year-old. Um, Amanda is the politics and society editor of The Conversation. She's led our coverage of some of the year's biggest events, same-sex marriage, Manus and the Queensland election, to name just a few. Prior to joining the conversation, Amanda was a reporter and editor with The Age for 16 years, covering health, education, social policy, pop culture and the arts. So please join me in welcoming Michelle and Amanda. Thanks, Michelle, and thank you everybody for coming out tonight on this beautiful summer's evening. Um, so just a quick quick note about the format for tonight. Michelle and I will do a Q&A session for about 30 minutes and then we'll open the floor to questions. If you could please ask questions rather than make comments. Those of you who watch Q&A will know about that. Um, that would be terrific. Uh, and the, the yearbook is, uh, is on sale just over here on the desk as you're leaving if you would like to purchase a copy. So, Michelle, you were kept very busy with... Young Dasher today, Sam Dastiari, who resigned from the Senate after um, a series of allegations uh, about his involvement with um, Chinese influence. He is the 12th senator from the, from the 2016 election to have left his post this year, the 12th. So most of them were 
ruled out by Section 44 and the dual citizenship saga, and three of them have resigned, including Dastiari. We talk a lot, as Misha mentioned, about trust in politicians and the political process. This year hasn't really done much to change that, has it? Uh, well, that's certainly right. But before I get into that, can I say uh, thank you for everyone coming and that I'm delighted to be back in uh, what is my home city, even though I haven't lived here for a very long time. I always have a, a special uh, place in my thoughts for, uh, for Melbourne. Now, in terms of, uh, of trust, I think that this has been a long-term problem in uh, not just Australian politics, but politics in many other Western countries. It's got many roots and it's got many results and manifestations. One of the results, of course, is that we've seen people increasingly look to uh, third parties to register their disapproval of the major parties. Now, of course, for a long time we've had third parties and uh, many here will be uh, remembering the Australian Democrats who had a substantial vote. But I think that some of the third parties we've had in more recent times are much more obviously protest votes and often... Uh, or the, the reciprocals uh, of uh, protest votes and uh, often fly-by-night outfits like, for example, the Palmer Party that came and went in an electoral cycle but because of its Senate power had uh, a lot of uh, influence while it was there. In terms of the politicians themselves, I think they've contributed to this lack of trust by their own uh, behaviour. It's rather ironical that as politics has become more professionalised, uh, people really have increasingly turned off it because they, they see a group of people who are practised actors in a way, practised at avoiding questions, uh, practised at giving out lines, the same lines which they get from their parties every morning and just repeat to the, the media. The media itself, I think, has contributed also to this lack of uh, trust. The 24-hour media cycle is uh, not really helping uh, the political process. It, it often... Uh, encourages public cynicism. Now, as for all those uh, politicians that have come, the, uh, the result of that, or come and gone, gone and come, the result of that has been that we have a whole heap of accidental politicians, people who, in the normal course of events, no one would have thought would have ended up in uh, the Senate in this particular electoral cycle um, and they themselves didn't think that they'd be in the Senate. So uh, it's a pretty bizarre situation because for those of them on the crossbench, they do have enormous power because of the power of the Senate, the nature of the uh, electoral system, which means that the crossbenchers do have... Uh, an inordinate amount of influence or a disproportionate amount of influence. Mm. The, the same-sex marriage uh, path through Parliament, which ended up actually going through fairly smoothly after the, the arduous process that preceded it, 
Uh, one of the things that you commented on in your analysis piece of that was that that Turnbull's troubles aren't over yet with that with the passage of of that bill. Um, he has had, by any measure, a fairly turbulent year. There's been a lot of discord within within the coalition government. He, uh, the, the the right wing of, of the Liberal Party, has been particularly active. Corey Bernardi's even packed up and left. Um, on Saturday, there'll be a by-election in Benelong because of Section 44 and John Alexander. How important is that for Turnbull and why? I think it's very important. It's interesting that there was a, a news poll out today which showed a 50-50 two-party vote. Uh, so it's a pretty exciting contest uh, worth waiting up for on Saturday night, it seems. Uh, but if Turnbull lost that by-election... I think that would be very, very bad news for him. If the swing was held to the normal by-election swing, which I haven't refreshed my mind on this, but I think is 5% or something, a percentage point around that either way, then that would be a good result because you'd certainly expect some swing. Uh, somewhere between that and a loss, well, it depends really on uh, the precise figure and and the interpretation that's put on it. But it is a critical by-election. A, a good result for Turnbull would be seen in uh, the sort of terms that the Aston by-election of 2001 was seen in, and that was that it was interpreted as, as Howard uh, reaching some sort of turning point and consolidating his... Uh, sort of resurrection, as it were. Now, there were other factors in 2001, and I still think that if it hadn't been for Tampa, if it hadn't been for 9-11, probably Howard would have lost that election. But other people take a different view, and certainly the Aston by-election, holding that seat, was regarded as really, really important. Now, of course, Bill Shorten's had a couple of bad weeks, there's no doubt about that, so... If that poll in the Oz was wrong and the Benelong by-election was a much better result for Turnbull, then that would consolidate the feeling that Turnbull was reviving somewhat. If, on the other hand, Benelong is bad, then people will say, oh, well, OK, Shorten didn't look good for a couple of weeks, but really the underlying trend is in Labor's direction. Mm. Just, just thinking about the, the Queensland election, which was finally resolved last week after two weeks, I think it was, this seems to be the new normal now, that there's the landslide elections are a thing of the past. We're going to have very, very close elections that probably aren't often decided on the night, that the counting goes on and on. I should say that Anthony Green got it right on the night. He did, he did. <laughs> um, and... There was a lot of talk before the Queensland election, also before the WA election, about the rise of one nation, that people... ..that there was this sort of swing globally towards right-wing populism, that one nation was part of that. But in the end, it didn't work out that way at all. What's your reading of that? Well, I think that you can look at the uh, Queensland result for, for one nation in two ways. They did get a lot of votes in certain areas, and that reflects 
the fact that people are looking for a vehicle for a protest vote and that reflects the alienation. But what they weren't able to do, and it was partly because of the voting system, was translate that vote into seats and therefore they're not able to deliver for those who voted for them and that works against their long-term influence. I do think that One Nation is essentially a flash-in-the-pan sort of party, but it's sort of going to be a long flash, if you, if you like to put it that way. <laughs> but it's not going to be a party that will outlive its, uh, its head, her political tenure, I don't think, for very long. So, in a way, it's like the... Palmer United Party, although it is more resilient, obviously, than that party was, um, but it eventually will go, maybe to be replaced by some new uh, iteration of a, a protest party. Mm. I think that could be the new motto, uh, a long flash, <laughs> one nation. Um, just in terms of policy Obviously, you know, what we were talking about before is that a lot of the noise around politics has been around um, Section 44 and various scandals around expenses, going back to Susan Lee last January, um, foreign donations, foreign influence. I know a lot of people become disillusioned with politics because they feel that policy falls by the wayside when all of this happens and that we in the media are partly culpable for that because we chase those stories rather than focusing on policy. And just thinking about the key policy um, issues that have, that have, you know, made some headway this year. There's energy, obviously, was a big one. Gonski, Gonski 2.0 got through. Um, Same-sex marriage reform actually happened. How do you feel about this? Has this been a good 12 months on the policy front or do you feel that it has suffered from all the, all the other distractions around it? I don't think it's been a particularly good 12 months and I think we're probably in a, a situation where it's hard to make progress on policy for a number of reasons that people have... Um, uh, people often talk about reform fatigue but I think that that uh, is, is correct. People are feeling... Um, hard-pressed in many cases in their own lives economically because wages have been not growing and therefore when there's talk of economic reform, which in, almost inevitably, unless there's a lot of money flowing around, means there are going to be losers as well as winners and it might be very difficult for many people on the way through, then it's hard to get... Uh, those sorts of reforms going. Also, some of the big reforms have been done, so what needs to be done now is a bit, a bit less clear than maybe it was 20, 30 years ago. So there are those sorts of um, problems which make it quite hard to make significant uh, advances in policy. And so I think we see... Uh, it's just very difficult to move forward. And the other thing is that institutionally the Senate is quite uh, difficult to, uh, for any government to navigate uh, policy through these, these days. And, and we've seen that over not just recent times but looking back um, uh, to 
earlier governments, we, we've seen mm. obstacles in uh, getting changes through the Senate. But isn't it also that, that the politicians are so um, averse to controversy that they, they fly these kites, as they like to say? I'm thinking about the sort of ch- changes to GST that were floated, mm. then shot down, because they do a whole lot of focus groups and they find that, in fact, people don't like them, it's going to be unpopular, they're sitting on a razor-thin majority, it's not a good idea. Isn't it also that they have become quite hamstrung by those kind of popularity votes? Yes, I think that is true. And one of the factors in this is that we do get government by opinion poll these days. And so politicians can't say, all right, things are going to be a bit difficult uh, for the next year or whatever, but uh, as a leader I can weather that and uh, I will be judged at the end of the three-year term. Now they're judged every fortnight uh, by News Poll in particular and uh, they do know, or a leader under pressure does know, that he or she uh, is likely to uh, find their job at risk if a policy is too unpopular and it leads to the polls going down. So that is another factor that makes it hard to pursue policy, uh, good policy, any policy indeed, over time. Mm. And just one one last thing before we uh, uh, open the floor to questions. What, What do you think has been, looking back on the last 12 months, what do you think has been the most significant event politically uh, in Australia this year? Well, I think that the most significant event or phenomenon has been uh, the whole controversy around citizenship Mm. because it really has cut a sway through all the parties now. I think, um, don't think there's any little party out there um, with with, um, three members or more that hasn't been uh, uh, affected by this and it's, we don't know where it's going to end, how it can be uh, contained, I think ultimately it can only be contained by a referendum and I think that the politician should be brave enough to try a referendum and if it fails, well, it's not going to be some sort of disaster. I think, for example, uh, it wouldn't be anything like failing to carry a referendum on Indigenous recognition, not that we're now going to see that anytime soon. But... I think that it's had an incredibly disruptive effect and it's, of course, been exploited politically by government and opposition, uh, but both have, have suffered from it. And it's an example of where really there needed to be a bipartisan recognition that this was a, a problem and uh, something... Uh, needed to be done in a bipartisan way, but the the whole situation in Canberra is really so toxic that the politicians prefer to fight it out rather than say, well, what sort of way can we find through that? Mm. All right, so um, we'd like to open open the floor to your questions now, please. Just raise your hand if you have a question and Molly will bring the microphone to you. It's a bit of a big ask, but um, constitutional law, maybe if you've got more knowledge than I have, should by any lucky chance the election this weekend in Sydney go to Labor um, and perhaps the Liberals start thinking about knifing dear Mr Turnbull, is there any possible constitutional chance that Labor might say 
and the Greens, this is grounds for disruption. Yet again, another um, party has been changing leadership halfway through an election cycle and can the government, whole government be disbanded? Uh, you, mean, uh, unconst- you mean if Turnbull was rolled? Yes. Right. yes. If Turnbull was rolled or if the government lost a vote of confidence in the House... Um, now, well, uh, it is uh, firstly dealing with Turnbull. If um, Benelong was lost, I think that uh, the leadership would become uh, an issue in the new year. But the problem is that uh, what's uh, really uh, the problem the Liberals face is that even if uh, they thought it was a good idea to change leaders, the candidates that are available are not really necessarily going to be more appealing to the public than than Turnbull. You're talking about uh, Julie Bishop, Peter Dutton, Scott Morrison, Tony Abbott in in practical terms, right? Or all of them. Um, So uh, I think that um, the party, the Liberal Party, would think going back to Abbott was not going to leave them better off. Uh, Both Dutton and Morrison would not be seen as great vote winners and Bishop has uh, a lot of enemies among both the Conservatives and the non-Conservatives in the Liberal Party. So I don't think it follows that Turnbull would be overthrown but it is possible if Benelong was lost that um, marginal seat holders would just completely panic Now, in terms of the numbers on the floor, um, if Benelong changed, I think it would still be... uh, It would not necessarily uh, lead to a a, a, um, a possible vote of of no confidence. I think it would be a... um, It would be a dead heat, but I just... I'd have to recheck the... Sums on that. It, the, yeah, Amanda con, uh, uh, confirms this um, because they'd they'd um, still have the the speaker in in a casting vote position. Sorry, it's hard to hear. Yeah. Sorry, it's just that the leader of the Greens, Mr. Natalie, went to get constitutional advice on whether he could call the government no confidence and I can't remember what the grounds for that were. It didn't go anywhere but I just wonder... Yeah, no, I think he was on fairly shaky ground. (laughs) The the Governor-General will not um, uh, take his advice. He'll take the government's advice. Uh, Michelle, you've been on the beat for 40 years, I hear, tonight and I'd be curious to hear your uh, comparison between the politician of 40 years ago and the politician of today. (laughs) To me, it seems that too many of our politicians today have never had a real job. They've come from a union or they're ex-ministerial advisers and they've been sort of massaged up through the system and they're there really to keep the seat warm rather than to have any philosophical or genuine belief in trying to improve the public interest. Do you... Uh, I'd be interested in your, com- in your comments about the quality of our politicians today versus 40 years ago. Look, I think it's always um, tempting to romanticise the past and to think that 
everything was better then than now, and I don't think uh, that's necessarily right. But uh, by the same token, I do think you've got a point in terms of the uh, politicians, especially in that post-war period probably, if you go right back, they had more uh, diverse backgrounds, more uh, life experience um, than today's politicians. Now, of course, Labor has always had a high proportion of people who've had senior trade union uh, positions. That hasn't changed, but they have fewer uh, people these days from any sort of um, manual background, and a lot of the people who come up through the union movement are uh, young professionals who've gone into the union movement after university uh, in order to become politicians. You know, they've, they've sort of chosen that route. And on the um, liberal side too, uh, you do find a, a large proportion these days who've been political staffers before they've uh, come to parliament. Just thinking about the nationals, uh, I think they probably still have quite a, a diverse background and uh, I don't have figures in my head but just thinking of individuals, I think probably these days fewer farmers, more small business people, townspeople and so on perhaps than decades ago. So uh, without romanticising the, uh, the past, I do think your point is, is, is right. Yeah, Michelle, we're about a sixth of the way into this century in 2017. You've talked about reform fatigue and, and the latter part of the 20th century we saw a lot of change and it appears in not just Australia but in much of the Western world we seem to have a, a schism between the progressives who want to deal with what we have to deal with this century and the conservatives who want to go back and take things back to the way they were and unwind some of those real changes that we've all been part of. What do you see as the circuit breakers that will break this, that enable us all to come together and address some of the really big challenges we're going to face in this century over the next 20 to 30 years, that, that breaks this schism? We've got the two political parties aligning themselves between progressive and conservative. What's going to be the circuit breakers that changes this? Well, I guess you've never had unity on change. That's the first thing. But uh, circuit breakers, um, you do have uh, sometimes big events or um, big pressures in the system that take you on to another sort of era. And in Australia's case, of course, when you had 80s reform, you had pressure to open the Australian economy to the world. So while we say that the politicians of that time did well, and it is true they did well, they were also helped by um, the, the winds behind them, the winds in their sails from the rest of the world, saying, you know, you need to open the economy, the whole globalisation phenomenon. Uh, I guess that the um, global financial crisis provided the sort of circuit breaker you're talking about, um, maybe not 
as much as it might have, but it's those sorts of events that do provide circuit breakers and that force governments and countries to make certain changes. But at the moment, one of the uh, factors in uh, it's not doing more, I guess, is that it's not really clear what needs to be done. You know, everyone says, well, you need tax reform, but people have different views about what sort of tax reform and whether, for example, uh, changes to the company tax will in fact bring economic growth or won't bring growth or will be counterproductive. In other words, it's very hard to get consensus on what should be done. In some times, it's very obvious. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Um, look, my question is in relation to um, what's happened with Sam Destiari. I've, I get the comment from other people that... Um, my first question is, is, that, um, is what he has done any worse than any other politician who's taken money from vested interests? Um, and... That would be my... So has he, has he paid an appropriate price for what he's done relative, relative to what other people do, have done, what other politicians have done? And secondly, my comment is um, that allegedly some of these revelations come from leaked uh, ASIO sources, as, as I understand. Um, is that a scandal? Is that something that should be further investigated? Um, well, let me just go backwards on that. On the um, sources of the leaks, we don't really know. Uh, the, uh, some of these stories, main stories, have uh, been journalistic investigations and that's often a uh, case of building up a mosaic from a whole lot of sources. So it is... Um, it's very hard to know, and I know that some people who are very familiar with intelligence sources uh, say that ASIO does not leak these days, and other people equally familiar, and these are not journalists with intelligence sources, say it's an outrage that ASIO is starting to leak. I don't know the answer whether they did or whether they didn't. Obviously, they shouldn't, but I do think think that you've always got to be careful when you try to spot sources. Sometimes you can, but often you can't. Now, on the point about what Sam's done, uh, Bill Shorten was making the point when he was defending Sam Dastiari that he'd done nothing illegal, and that's obviously right. I think it's also right that he, he was in the, the thrall of um, his, this benefactor who is of interest to the security agencies and is seen as close to the Communist Party of China. I don't think that that's a good situation for an Australian politician. I don't. I think uh, that uh, foreign interference is a concern and that politicians ought to be very, very careful and uh, when it comes to a question of accepting money, uh, that uh, it, it, it's um, bad if they, especially in his case when it was a, a personal debt that was being paid, it's bad if they do accept money. I think it's a good thing that this 
ban is being brought in. And you did see that, that Sam Dastiari did seem to um, adopt a, a line favoured by China against the policy of his own party on the South China Sea. I think if you put all his conduct together, it's not just one thing, it's the whole lot uh, that it's not a good picture. I think what you see here is Sam Dastiari seeing China as the way of the future and he was getting on that wave. But having said all that, it's also a fine line and uh, people would say, well, what about Andrew Robb? Now, I wouldn't put Andrew Robb in the same category, but I think that when you have a minister who's been a trade minister who uh, then immediately goes and works for uh, a, a Chinese company, uh, then uh, really that that is uh, not a good situation either. I know Andrew Robb very strongly defends his position and uh, uh, believes that he has uh, met every test of integrity in this situation, but I think that there needs to be more separation and uh, more divorce between one's political career and then going um, into a, a commercial relationship with, um, with a Chinese company. Well, he's paid a big price. Um, I think that uh, being out of Parliament, being essentially forced by the circumstances to walk away from Parliament is, is the ultimate price. Now, he paid that price because his political position became untenable. I mean, there was no automatic payment of, of that price, but in politics, sometimes quite trivial incidents, much more trivial than this, can lead to a minister, uh, for example, standing down, standing aside. Very seldom does it lead to someone leaving parliament, but um, in, in politics, it, it really is when a, a situation becomes politically untenable, as this did. Um. Sorry, I was holding. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Um, Michelle, um, it's good to see you in your hometown. Thank um, you. Uh, you. You were saying earlier before it, it, it's it's not a good idea to romanticise about earlier generations of um, mm -hmm. political leaders, but I, I think a lot of people have the sense that uh, politicians these days are lacking in a bit of political courage, in in, in vision. You know, that it's it's a bit of a, a trite term, perhaps these days, but. Um, and in particular, I think a lot of people had expectations of Malcolm Turnbull. And um, watching um, Malcolm Turnbull last night on q and I think a lot of people are possibly getting are pretty disappointed with Turnbull. And, and maybe it's, it's aligned with that expectation that there'd be some courage and there'd be some vision. And he seems to have backed off from some of his former positions. Do you want to make, just make a comment about that, please? First, on your point about... Um you know, politicians not looking so good these days, remember that you see a lot more of them. 
And this is a factor. Paul Keating never wanted you to see Question Time uh, televised, didn't want Parliament televised, even though Paul Keating was brilliant in Parliament. But I think he understood that uh, the sort of theatre of Parliament can be pretty strong meat if you see it uh, in, put into your lounge room. And also, even since Keating's time, of course, the wall-to-wall -wall media coverage is one of the factors turning off uh, people from politics, I think. Uh, now, on Malcolm Turnbull, yes, people have been disappointed. There's no doubt about that. Probably had expectations that were too high, uh, and that's always a problem. I think also that um, Malcolm Turnbull had to compromise a number of his own positions in order to get the leadership, and he did that. And people saw were, were slightly shocked by the fact that they knew he thought that certain things, believed in certain things, and then they saw what he was, and that is a very transactional politician. Now, I'm, I'm saying that in a descriptive way rather than as a condemnation of him. But he does have certain beliefs. He has certain values. That's certainly true. But he is willing to make all sorts of pragmatic compromises to get power, to get leadership, uh, or for promoting other purposes that might need, he thinks might need to be promoted. And so you have someone who inevitably disappoints expectations because he's transactional and pragmatic and because he had to do a lot of uh, pragmatic trans uh, transactions to get leadership. The other thing I'd say about Malcolm Turnbull is that he always wanted to be number one. There's no doubt that is a a prime driver in his personality. But he probably is someone who found actually governing uh, quite hard and perhaps harder than he thought. In other words, the, the journey uh, he navigated more effectively than what he did when he arrived at the destination. And he wouldn't be the first politician that this has happened to. Governing is very hard and governing in our age and with our political system and media system and so on is particularly difficult. So I think all those things meant that his image has tarnished. Michelle, thank you for being here tonight. I think we appreciate the words from someone a lot closer to the action than we are. We've spoken a lot about uh, leadership, lack of conviction and party policies and so forth and trying to get good policies, but somewhere in this whole scenario, what's wrong with the political system that we're working under and is there anything that people like in the audience can do to help change it to a better system if there is one? Some of those things that uh, uh, make the political system difficult to operate, of course, we've, we've touched on. Um, institutionally, it's quite a hard system with, uh, with a very powerful Senate and the way the Senate is 
elected by proportional representation, which puts a lot of power on the uh, the crossbench. And that crossbench, I might say, has become much more assertive in recent years. They're, they've all got profiles. They all get onto Sky News. They all think they individually have mandates or their minor parties have mandates. So that's just one factor. The lack of trust and cynicism that we've talked about is another factor that um, really makes governing, I think, um, quite hard. The, uh, the difficult issues faced, uh, economic and, and other issues, means that uh, making decisions, getting support for the decisions is, is difficult. The media cycle is also feeds into this and uh, means that um, uh, the sort of policies uh, people think we need are often uh, pushed aside for more short-term uh, gains and, and also I mentioned the opinion polls. So I think it's a whole collection of things that makes government, governing particularly difficult in these years. I don't think there's any one thing that you can change. Obviously, you can try and... Uh, work on some of them. But if you just take trust, for example, what do you do to install, uh, instill more uh, trust in the political process? Some people say you give people a more direct say in governing or you have a more consultative style, uh, but th that can also have downsides. However, I think that while we should acknowledge that it has all become more difficult, we should also remember that we do have a, a robust democratic system and it's, it's far from perfect. It mightn't be doing enough um, to get good policy through, but nevertheless we should focus on the, the positives of it. It does quite a lot not just on the negatives. Because if we focus always on the negatives, the downsides, the complaints we have, then we just make the system worse. We, we, put, we pollute the system. We inject more toxic substances into the political system. So I do think that we need to balance our criticism with some... Uh, realisation about the positives in, that we have in our democracy as well. Well, I think the uh, politicians have an obligation to uh, not always play their politics by exploiting uh, the complaints and unhappiness that people feel about specific things. I think that they have, uh, they've seen the effectiveness of negative politics. It's like negative advertising is always said to be very effective in election campaigns. And so they tend to default to that, although there was an exception. Malcolm Turnbull didn't uh, have too much uh, negative advertising in the 2016 com campaign and he was much criticised by some fellow Liberals for for not doing, not going negative. But I think that if politicians 
were willing to uh, not campaign so negatively that that would be one uh, positive factor in improving things. But, of course, persuading them to that line is um, another matter and a, another... Well, that, that is true, but, but uh, sometimes you also see inspirational politicians arise and they don't always live up to people's hopes and expectations, but I think that um, we should remember that uh, those sorts of figures are, are desirable in politics and we should... Uh, encourage them when we spot them. Um, Michelle, do you think that the, issue, the crisis that seems to be engulfing Western democracies is because that the two-party system is no longer completely relevant to how people think, act and vote these days? I think that, that that's... Uh, true uh, as far as it goes, but nevertheless you have multi-party uh, systems in Europe which still uh, have uh, very considerable problems. So I don't know that that's the only factor, but certainly the, um, uh, the, the rise of uh, these protest parties suggests that in... Some systems, uh, that's the case. People, people have just lost faith in the major parties. And, of course, one reason that this happens is that those parties have been hollowed out. If you went back to the 40s, 50s, I think you'd find that there were um, large mass memberships of those major parties. And... Uh, when you had people, a lot of people participating, that gave uh, a, a pathway through for aspiring politicians. It gave um, a feeling that you could have influence um, through those parties. Now, there were downsides to that too. And, of course, uh, for a long time there was criticism of the Labor Party that that the lay party, the organisation, had far too much say in policy and over uh, a period the influence of the outside organisation, the extra-parliamentary organisation, was whittled down. Uh, so it's, it's not an argument going just one way, but I do think that when those were mass parties, uh, they were much more robust and they were much more respected and uh, they helped um, reinforce a feeling that the system worked and people could have people could join and people could have a say and some influence. We actually probably only have time for a couple more questions. We will get to you, sir. So this lady and then this gentleman here who's been very patient, so please go ahead. Thank you very much to the conversation for hosting tonight and it's great to see um, not only Michelle you're here after the, your long career, still going, um, but two women, thank you. That's a sign of the times, I think, which, a positive thing for which we wouldn't have had 40 years ago. Um, I wondered, This is probably following on a little bit from that. I was wondering if you could um, kindly comment on the... Um, 
what's going on with uh, our big cities and the growing influence and um, numbers of the Greens and whether we are inevitably um, shifting to what's being talked about as the donut effect of red on the outside, blue, green in the middle and maybe in particular the um, role of policy on refugees in that mix. Thanks. Well, I think that the Greens... um the Greens have probably reached a plateau of vote at the moment. A plateau, I'm not saying that they couldn't in the future significantly rise, but at the moment I, they could go up or, or down in the future, but they're at a plateau. Uh, but they are concentrated. They're a bit like the nationals in this. They're concentrated in certain areas, and if, as is quite likely... There's a by-election in Batman. I'd put a bet, but mind you, in politics, only a modest bet, please. A bet on the Greens winning Batman, and that would give them two seats in the lower house, which would be pretty interesting in light of what we were talking about before in in um, in terms of the um, of the Parliament. Although that uh, would, of course, take a seat from Labor, but in the um, Senate. I think the Greens are likely to have um, a bit more of a struggle in coming years uh, because of, um, well, the the cycle of their people facing re-election and so on. So they're, they're strengthening regionally, their vote is plateauing and their, their upper house representation they'll have to work really hard at. Um, sorry, there was another aspect. Oh, the refugees. Well, the refugee issue is is really, I think, a a blot on our uh, our national reputation. Uh, and I come at this from the point of view of thinking, yes, we do have to maintain secure borders. So I'm not saying uh, I, I'm not particularly anti the turn back policy. I think that. Um, uh, if you have uh, people, uh, a boat trade coming in, it has all sorts of adverse consequences on people's attitude to immigration and so on. The people, however, who have been uh, trapped on, on Manus and uh, Nauru have lost years of their lives and probably in many cases have just been driven mad by the incarceration and, and the circumstances in which they find themselves. You wonder, I mean, if we put ourselves in this situation, if we were um, in this situation for a month, I wouldn't cope. I don't know about you. Uh, but certainly those people should be um, got off. Uh, I think that it's appalling that Australia is not willing to accept the New Zealand offer. Uh, I think that to say that this necessarily would restart the boat trade is is a nonsense. You have a you have a navy stopping that uh, restarting. So I think there should be more pressure put on America, and I think that the New Zealand offer should be encouraged, and if possible, more people sent to New Zealand or New Zealand persuaded to take more people than even its uh, current offer. Thank you. And I'm without in any sense wishing to romanticise the past, looking back, 
I'm amazed at what Julia Gillard was able to do in the face of extraordinary opposition in her time as Prime Minister. Am I romanticizing it, or is it really quite one of the high points of achievement? Look, I think she, um, she did a lot um, in the circumstances. I think that she was uh, a very good negotiator, and therefore she was able to make that parliament work. She struck up a good relationship with the, the critical lower house crossbenches that she needed to um, keep on side. But I do think that her whole position was undermined by the circumstances of her getting the prime ministership. I think that she made a very fundamental mistake in the beginning when uh, those wanting to overthrow Kevin Rudd persuaded her to be part of that coup and therefore she was vulnerable ever after. And um, my own thought is that if Rudd had... After all, Rudd had only dipped in a very few opinion polls, two or three or I've forgotten the exact number, but not many, certainly not 24 as Malcolm Turnbull is up to or um, anything like that. And I think that he would have won that election and Gillard would have taken over in a more benign climate and could have been, therefore, a very successful Prime Minister. We can take oh, okay, great. Sorry, is there, Michelle's happy to take a couple more if anybody well, has a I question mean, for her. <laughs> Anybody? Now, no one yeah. has a question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. gentleman at the back, just behind you. There. I, I think many of us understand that there's a part of the population that gets irritated by politicians and therefore either vote informally or will vote for a splinter party. But do you think there's a, a danger that there's a part of the population that's starting to believe these more extreme views and that the major parties are able to resist it or that maybe some of the, some of the members of the major parties will be attracted like, like to a magnet to these more extreme views? Do, do you think we have a political system that can resist this shift towards extremism? Well, when you look at what's happened elsewhere, uh, I think that it's a warning sign that uh, you have to be careful, you have to be alert and alarmed to that possibility. But I do think that our system is pushed towards the centre by compulsory voting and that that provides one protection. Now... Ideally, of course, you would say, well, if, why should we have compulsory voting? People should have the, the right not to vote if they want to. And that's right in theory. But in practice, it is a, a form of insurance that uh, you will have less worry about extremism than if you had a, a voluntary system, I think, over the long term. Also, extremism arises in part out of economic circumstances. So I think it is really important that you remember 
or that we remember as a society that one important um, underpinning of our political system is an economic system where uh, wealth is reasonably shared, where there are not gross inequalities, where you have a strong uh, social welfare net, all those things. And if people are feeling comfortable in their economic circumstances, if they have protection against uh, things unexpectedly happening to them, uh, then I think that that will be uh, a foundation that means that, that extremism is, is, falls on more stony ground. This one here. Ah. Michelle, I work at the Brotherhood of St Lawrence and I know you from another life <laughs> at the age. But um, I just wanted to ask, um, you mentioned inequality and, um, and the social welfare system. And, of course, those things are under strain. I mean, the issue of inequality is figuring more in international debates and has now started seeping into discussions in Australia. Uh, New Start, if I may make an ad, is just merely 38.48 a day for a single person um, without children, uh, for an unemployed person, and that's really inadequate. Why are those issues not more at the centre of political debates? I mean, what, 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 will, what will it take for that to be a greater concern and prosecuted more vigorously? Well, I think that they are... at. at uh, in the political mix and you have seen, for example, uh, the Senate uh, rejecting or um, making it clear it would reject some uh, attempts to change the, the welfare system. So I don't think it's a case that they're uh, not in the debate but also you have the, at these in these times you have a lot of emphasis on the need to bring the budget uh, back into uh, balance to provide uh, insurance if there were future international shocks. So uh, there will always be a shortage of resources and those advocating on the welfare side have to make their case strongly and I guess have, uh, there's a need also uh, to identify other things that are less of a priority and that can be trimmed back if you want to get more into the welfare system, more finance into the welfare system. So I'm afraid I think we will have to, to leave it there now. Um, uh, on behalf of everybody at the conversation, I'd like to thank you all very much for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. It's terrific to see so many people here. And special thanks to Michelle who has uh, come down from Canberra via Brisbane um, to, to share her vast expertise with us. And I'm lucky enough I get to work with her every day, but I'm sure you enjoyed hearing from her tonight. Uh, before you go... I thank you. Thank you. This is, this is our yearbook, which many of you have probably seen. It is on sale just here if you would like to buy a copy. Um, it's a fantastic stocking, stocking stuffer. <laughs> the kids will love it. Um, <laughs> Must be better than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, thank you again for coming out tonight and, um, and we hope to see you at another event like this next year. Good night.